Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. If we haven't met, my name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. Uh, This morning for our sermon, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. And so we've been slowly going through this Old Testament story. We get to chapter 3 this morning. And so before we read, just a reminder of where we are. Uh, Nehemiah, it's a story of the rebuild of Jerusalem and especially the walls. And so it's a story set in the backdrop of tragedy. And so Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon in 586 BC. And spiritually, it was a story of judgment to where God's people had turned their back on him. And so they had been sent into exile. But by the time we get to Nehemiah, the people have already returned. And so after 70 years, God returned his people to Jerusalem and they have started to rebuild, but not fully. And so Nehemiah is a story of, of one person, Nehemiah, who, who agrees with God in his vision to rebuild. And so he has returned to Jerusalem, and he has started to stir up the people to get back to work, to actually do the work of rebuilding the walls. And so that's where we pick up our reading in Nehemiah chapter 3. That should be on page 399 if you're using the church Bible, and it'll also be up on the screen. Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, you promised that your word is life, and it would be a light for our path. And so would you help us to see marvelous things in your word this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 3, it's a fairly long reading with lots of names, and so we'll, we'll take our time to go through. Nehemiah 3, beginning in verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bena, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joida, the son of Pasha, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yashana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jadon the Merathonite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, and the seed of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel the son of Hariah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the Hass district of Jerusalem, repaired. And next to them, Jada, the son of Harumph, repaired opposite his wall, his house. And next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashbaniah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Haram, and Hashbub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section in the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, the ruler of the Hash district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, 
and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the Dungate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, the ruler of the district of Beth Harakim, repaired the Dungate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalem, the son of Kolhoza, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of the district of Beth-zer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Reham, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hash, Hashabiah, the ruler of the half-district of Kelah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Hanadad, ruler of half-district of Kelah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maseah, son of Aniah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Binyu, son of Hanadadad, repaired another section, from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palau, the son of Yuzay, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living in Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Teokites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, son of Shemaliah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. This is the word of the Lord. Are you? I hope so. You know, we say that every time, and it's true every time, but sometimes you need a little more help. You know, this is one of those Sundays where one pastor said, you're more nervous about the reading than you are about the sermon. So how do you feel after that reading? Let me guess. Some of you, you might be leaning forward, wondering, what is the preacher going to say about this? In my mind, I picture that kind of Western situation where the outlaw has his guns and he's shooting at the feet of the performer. Dance, puppet, dance. I don't have to ask who you are. I can see the gleam in your eye. Others might be sitting back wondering, oh, brother, what can this passage possibly mean for me? It's like that student who's stuck in a class that they're pretty sure has nothing to do with the rest of their lives, right? Why do I have to take this subject? I won't ask who that is. 
But all it's to say is that I think we're all kind of in the same boat here. We really need something extraordinary to happen for God to speak to us from this chapter. Because what is the significance of building a wall? And actually, this was kind of the question for the people in Nehemiah's day as well. And so remember the situation that the people, they have returned from exile. Um, They had gone into exile because they had really rejected God. His worship was a bore to them. His commands were a drag. His people were just pawns to be used for personal advantage. And how could God bless the world through people like that? Well, after 70 years in exile, God had brought them back physically, but a return to a special place didn't change them automatically to a special people. And so Nehemiah's story is 100 years after they returned. But remember how Nehemiah starts. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. The remnant, that is the Israelites there in the province who had survived the exile, they're in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So a hundred years after the people had returned, this was the situation. Broken down walls, gates destroyed, people in shame. So how could God work through people like this? People who were ashamed to bear his name, ashamed to live in his city. See, Nehemiah is the answer to that question. It's a story about God changing the world for his people by changing them. That's really how God gets things done in the world. It's really what we all want, the extraordinary thing we all need. It's no doubt we want God to do something in the world, but ultimately we want him to do something for us, to change our lives, to change us. And so Nehemiah chapter 3, this chapter full of names, is a story about how God gets things done by getting ordinary people to build their lives on his promises. And so we're going to go through this passage. One pastor has described it as kind of skating along the surface. And so we don't have to take very deep dives, but as we skate along, we're going to see what God is doing, how he's getting things done. So first, if you're following along in the outline, first point is that God sets his people apart. God gets things done by setting apart his people. In your outline, it's actually the city, but I think the people is the better title here, because that's really what this is about. God gets things done by setting apart his people. And so if you look back in our passage in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we have Eliashib, the high priest, rising up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. And you know how it goes. These verses, they lay out the pattern of what is recorded in chapter 3, walls and people. Forty sections of walls repaired or built by different groups of people, with special attention given to the gates. Did you notice the repeated refrain? You have the gates, it's bolts, it's bars. Why? Because the gate is the place for the people. Not only was it the place where they came in, but it's where they did their business, they had their community. And so these first two verses, it's not only the pattern of the, the rebuild, but it's also the purpose that this is more than just a building project, that this project kicks off with the high priest not only doing the work, but actually doing it in a spiritually significant way. And so we're told that the high priest, he consecrates the gate. He consecrates the walls. 
And so this word consecrate, it means to set apart. It's actually the same word in the Old Testament that's used to describe Mount Sinai. Maybe you remember that story. And so the people of Israel, they were in Exodus, and God had rescued them out of Egypt. And when he's first setting up his relationship with them, they meet at Mount Sinai. It's a mountain where Moses would go up and meet with God. And God set it apart. He consecrated the mountain. And in this case, it was obvious that it was the case. So you had flashes of lightning and thunder and smoke. It was clear that God had made this mountain different. And that's what we're meant to see here, even if the physical picture is a lot less flashy. That this wall and the city it protects is set apart. It's consecrated. And so the high priest here, he's not making a statement of faith to God like we often would do, like, God, bless this wall, we give it to you. Instead, he's making a statement of faith in God. God, you have set this city apart. We, this people, belong to you. Our return, our restoration, our rebuild, it's all from your hand because you are with us. And so you see here at the beginning of chapter 3 that the priest is leading the people to live out their relationship with God. That's what Nehemiah was all about. That's why he had this passion for the rebuild. And so remember, chapter 1, the story starts with this report that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and the people were in great shame. Walls and people. And so when Nehemiah, he hopes to rebuild the walls, he does it because he believes that God will rebuild the people. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 8. This is Nehemiah, he's praying to the Lord as he He starts his work. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So God had set these people apart, he had redeemed them, and Nehemiah believes he will do it again. He would gather them, and they would be his people. And so at the end of chapter 2, when Nehemiah has surveyed the walls, he's taken a look at the brick and the stone and the wood. When he goes to talk to the people, what is his motivation? That God had already been working for them. Chapter 2, verse 18 Nehemiah, he's he's speaking to the people of the land, these people who were in great shame, returned but not rebuilt. Nehemiah says, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words of the king that he had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of this, They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Notice the temptation to stay in shame. But Nehemiah replies to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And so how does God get things done? By setting apart a people. His hand had set them apart. Nehemiah says God's hand is with us for good. And so what do the people do? They get their hands to work. And so when we get to chapter 3, it's certainly intentional that the work starts and is consecrated at the sheep gate. 
And so picture in your mind the temple in Jerusalem. It's in the north of the city. It had been rebuilt about 70 years before. This temple where the people would bring their sacrifices to receive forgiveness, to commune with God, to be with God. It's the sheep gate because that's where the sheep would come in. But even though the temple had been rebuilt, the people hadn't been. They were still in shame. They needed more. They needed more than just that outward opportunity for religious expression. They needed the inward trust of what God was doing. And so I want you to picture the city in your mind and imagine this temple rebuilt, but just outside of the temple wall, you have the gate and the walls destroyed. What happened? It's almost as if the people had rebuilt the church without worrying about the parking lot, right? Kind of like a drive-through. No room for relationship. Just get in and get out. That's not what the temple was about. That's not what the sacrifices were for. It was that God had set them apart. He would be their God. They would be his people. The temple was a place where God would dwell with his people. He would live with them. Literally, he would be in their middle. And so imagine the picture. There's the temple, rebuilt. God had moved back in. But what is the city like? It's torn down, ashamed. God had moved back in, but the people hadn't. And so what does God need to do to get things done? He needs to set this people apart. They are his, and so his faithfulness would follow them, and he needed them to believe it, to build their lives upon it. And so chapter 3 here, this isn't just a, a cutting of the ribbon. This isn't like that first shovel full of dirt and praying over it just to be safe. This consecration, it's a picture of receiving the promises of God and resting in them. You have set us apart, so we are set apart. So he's rebuilding his people. And how is he going to do it? How will we get things done? Well, secondly, by gifting them for service. God gets things done by gifting his people for service. And I think there's a bit of a surprise here, because in some ways you might read this chapter like those uh, passages in the New Testament where it talks about all different people with all different kinds of gifts coming together to function as one body. And it is a bit like that. But in this case, there's a more common or foundational gift that we see displayed. It's really the gift of sacrificial service. It's the foundational gift that God gives us. And where do we see it in our passage? Well, really in two ways. First, we see people serving outside of their natural abilities. It starts in verse 1 with this high priest leading not only in the spiritual work, but actually doing the physical work as well. In verse 9, we have politicians getting involved. We have Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem. You can't help but wonder if our House of Representatives would be quite so productive. Right? Spent a week fighting over who would be speaker. In verse 12, we have Shalom, the son of Haloshesh, ruler of the other half-district of Jerusalem. He's repairing, he and his daughters. Back then, it would have been unusual for women to do this type of work, but perhaps Shalom didn't have any sons. And no matter, his daughters were up for the task. No doubt, a powerhouse family. Later on, we read about merchants and goldsmiths, and perhaps my favorite in verse 8, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. There's a sacrifice, right? The guy with the nose for perfume, smelling the sweaty workers all day long. Why are we told these details? Because these people matter to God. And their service to God, even outside of their natural and comfortable talents, is what brings the wall together. 
It's a sign of how God gets things done. When he sets his people apart, he also gives them this gift of service. We also see this in people serving outside of their personal benefit. In the reading, you probably notice that some of the people, they work on the wall right next to their house, like in verse 23. We have Benjamin and Hashab repairing opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, and Ananiah repaired beside his own house. You see, these people had a very personal stake in the work. This wall was protecting their house. In some cases, their house was probably even in the wall. But others worked on the wall even though it gave them no direct benefit. Like in verse 22, we have the priests, the men of the surrounding area. These are the people of the plains that surrounded Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem was a city up on the hill, and then the plains around it is where these priests came from. So close, but no direct benefit. In verse 4, we hear about Merimoth, the son of Uriah. He repairs a section. But then we see him again in verse 21. He takes on a second additional section. Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. And so where's Eliashib? He's building the sheep gate. He's the high priest. He's consecrating the work. And while he is working outside the house of the Lord, you have Merimoth working outside the house of Eliashib. You see, God is getting things done by gifting his people for service, especially the very simple service of sacrifice, of bending their will for someone else. I think this is especially clear with the Tekoites. Look in verse 5. We have the Tekoites who are building. They're another group, not from Jerusalem. And so Tekoa was a city south of Jerusalem, probably about six miles. It's on the edge of the desert down near Bethlehem. But they had come to do the work. They had come to join in. But we're told that their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. In Hebrew, this refusal to stoop to serve, it's literally refusal to bend their neck. That's what the language is, that they wouldn't bend their neck to serve. You see, it's a picture of pride, that their heads were held too high to do work like this. Their necks were too hard to be turned towards what God was doing. There's a great irony that as nobles in Hebrew, it says they're the majestic ones. The majestic ones, but too majestic to take part in God's work. But not the Tekoites, the ordinary ones. They finish their initial section, and we see them show up again in verse 27 when they take on another. So why are we told all these details? Names of people and sections of all, because these people matter to God. And their service, even outside of their natural abilities, outside of their personal benefit, this is what God does to get things done. When he sets people apart, he also gives his people to serve. And more important than individual abilities is that foundational gift of sacrifice. I wonder if you know the old children's story about stone soup. Do you know the story? It's a story about a traveler who comes to a village and he's looking for food and lodging, but everyone closes up their shops and their homes. No one will share anything or show any hospitality. And so the traveler, he sets up on the outside of town, on the outskirts, and he puts a pot on the stove and he starts to boil water with a rock in it. 
And one by one, out of curiosity, the villagers come out to check out what's going on. And each time they come out and they look into the pot and they see the stone boiling in water and the traveler tells them that he's making stone soup. And he tells them that, you know, stone soup is very good, but it would even be better with some meat. It would even be better with some vegetables or some fresh bread. And so before you know it, the butcher and the farmer and the baker, they all contribute to make a delicious meal. And the story ends with all the villagers joining together for this feast outside of town, prepared around this traveler's stone soup. What's the point? Not that a soup is better with lots of ingredients. Everyone knows that. The point is that a community is better when people serve each other in love. You see, it's not a picture of economy, like people just sharing things. It's just a picture of community, a sacrifice for the other. And really, that's the picture in Nehemiah chapter 3. That's the picture of the church. I wonder if you've heard of the 20-80 rule, where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. It's actually not the case in the church that God has gifted you to serve, but the number one obstacle won't be your development or the deployment of your gifts and abilities, right? That is not your number one problem. The number one obstacle will be the cost, the cost of sacrifice. And that's exactly where the gospel hits most sharply. Yes, God's gifted you with all sorts of abilities to make your way in the world. He's even gifted you with ways to serve the church. But most of all, he has gifted you with grace, Grace, the willingness to sacrifice, to bend your neck for the other. In the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4 says it this way. Ephesians 4 verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So see the pathway that God has given generously in Jesus And so Jesus then gives generously as well. And what does he give? Verse 11. Well, he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers, right? So despite this passage, God expects this to be a gift to you. What's the point? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's you. To equip you for the ministry, to build up the body of Christ. What's the end? Verse 15. That speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so what's the point of this great giving that God has done in Jesus? It's that we would be built up in love. The most foundational gift, the gift of grace from God, through us. So how does God get things done? By gifting people for service, to grow in the love and image of Christ, to say no to self and yes to him, to bend the neck. And all this is really possible because God ultimately gets things done by calling his people by name. God gets things done by calling his people by name. It's the most basic answer of why we would read a chapter full of names. The names matter to God. He's written them down. Some of them are religious professionals or political leaders. Many of them are just ordinary people. Men of Jericho in verse 2. Daughters of Shalom in verse 12. Temple servants in verse 26. 
And if in the spirit of the new year, maybe you've tried to read the entire Bible before you know what happens, you get to those lists of names. They're all over the place. God seems to care an awful lot about names. Fifteen years after this, there's going to be another list of names in Malachi chapter 3. We're told that then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. God knows their names. It's like at the end of Romans, this letter written by Paul, Romans 16, Paul, he has this long list of names. Like Phoebe, a servant of the church. Priscilla and Aquila, fellow workers who risked their life for him. Epinetus, who was the first convert in Asia. Mary, who has worked hard for the Romans. Adronicus and Junia, who were his fellow prisoners. Or think of Hebrews chapter 11, where we have a list of names, people who had set their sights on faith and God. They're described as those of whom the world was not worthy but of whom God was not ashamed to be called their God, for he had prepared for them a city. And so it's a very simple point that when God gets things done, he does it by calling his servants by name. He has prepared a city, and so he has named them. And if you're a Christian, that's really what it means to be a Christian, that God has called our name And if you're a servant and you're feeling worn out and maybe a bit wobbly from all your labor, remember that God remembers your name. That he could write a similar letter about Grace Church Sanford, where name by name, section by section, he could talk about what he's doing. You see, he is writing a story where he has consecrated or set apart his people. That was our first reading in 1 Peter chapter 2. God's ongoing building project, not with stones, but with people. You know, we're getting ready to plant a church in Norwalk to start this new church, and the number one question I get, where's your church? Where's the building? It's a fair question. But we know that a building is not a church. When God builds his church, he uses people. People who take on the name of Christ, Christians, And like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He calls them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so how does God get things done in the world? It's by changing people by calling them by name, setting them apart, building them, gifting them to serve, to build their lives on his promises. And so, of course, your sacrificial love may seem ordinary. It may not seem to benefit you. What is required may not be a pleasant fit with your gifts and abilities. But it's an extraordinary thing to be built into God's church. You know, here in Nehemiah, God is rebuilding Jerusalem because he's not done with the city. He's not done with the people. 
400 years later, he would send another messenger, another leader, who would do a great work of consecration. He would set people apart. He would build another temple for another sacrifice. But the gate, it wouldn't be a sheep gate built with stones, but a gate with the sun, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He would build another wall, not surrounding Jerusalem, but surrounding every tribe and language and people whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life. That is called into the city prepared by God. You see, this is the great invitation of Nehemiah chapter 3. That God is getting things done. And here, what might look like ordinary, he describes as living stones being built into a precious house. Revelation says that one day we will see that city come down prepared. And so there's also a warning not to be like those so-called magnificent ones of Tekoa, those who wouldn't bend their neck to the Lord. I was struck, struck by the great tragedy of that picture compared to our sermon from last week. Last week we looked at Psalm 40. And these nobles of Tokea, they wouldn't bend their neck to God. But in Psalm 40, verse 1, this is David's testimony about what God is like. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He bent down. These nobles who wouldn't give thought to what God was doing to restore Jerusalem. In Psalm 40, verse 5, David's song of praise is that God has multiplied his wondrous deeds and thoughts towards us. This is what it means to be a Christian. To hear God call our name. You know, being a Christian is pretty simple. It's like the ABCs, the old preacher trick here. The ABCs admit that on our own we have lived with a stiff neck in relation to God. Going our own way. But we believe that God has bent down to save especially through sending his precious son, this sacrifice to take away our sin. Not a sheep gate built of stone, but a gate built through his son, where he says, enter through me. And so see, we confess that we have heard God call our name, that we have received the great honor of coming to Jesus, the living stone. And so it's a challenging section. But Nehemiah chapter 3 is a story of God getting things done. It's no small thing that after 100 years of shame, ordinary people would build. Build surrounded by opposition who would say, what are you doing? And they would say, we're doing God's work. Let's pray that we would share the same faith. Heavenly Father, your word is so useful to us. We can testify that it has been the case so often in the past. And so we pray and ask that it would be again today. Like each section of the wall that again and again and again you have built us up. So we thank you that this morning we get to benefit from your grace one more time. So by your spirit, please help us to strengthen our hands for the task you've given us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.